The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, so if you're in Mark chapter 5, we're going to begin looking today pretty much where we left off a number of weeks ago when Cliff took back over the Wednesday night class for a bit. I was joking with Cliff the other day. Cliff probably wondered why it took us about 29 weeks to get through four chapters of the book of Mark. He's no longer wondering. He's been four or five weeks in in 1 Peter, and he's on about the third verse, and we're not done with that. So he'll be quite a while in that book as well. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love to continue to dig deeply in the Scripture and to take our time with it. I think that's very appropriate. We need to study our entire lives anyway, so why not just do that in one sitting to one extent? But Cliff does an outstanding job with that. I told him when he first mentioned that might be a possibility what he would teach, he said something to the effect of, I don't know when the last time I taught that was. I said, Cliff, you preach out of it all the time. And he loves First and Second Peter and I always love to hear him uh, when he's doing that. So he's doing an outstanding job. But we left off at the very end of chapter 4. We were making mention at that point of the great storm where Jesus and his disciples were there, where the wind and the waves had overcome the ship. Uh, they believed that the ship would likely sink or they would be at least t- tossed from it. And they believed that they all would die. Of course, Jesus... Being the great God in a body that he was, he stood up and just basically said, as the scriptures record in English at least, peace be still. And with that, just those words were enough to calm the seas to the point I suppose it was more like a mill pond. And so that's the ending of what we see there in verse 41 of chapter 4, the book of Mark. When you transition into chapter 5, albeit the entire situation changes. They go from the sea to the land. They go from having something calm in their lives, such as that sea that had been calm, those winds had been brought down, to a tremendously, I can only suppose, um, a scary event in their lives once again, even though this just happens to be in body one, or if you ask Matthew's account, possibly two men, we'll mention that a little bit later, but those that were completely overcome with demons. And of course, this is not the first time in the context, even of Mark, that Jesus has cast out demons But typically speaking, there may have been one demon per person. This is a situation where there may have been 2,000 plus, according to the context of Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And by the way, that is the context we're looking at, Mark 5, 1 through 20. Uh, But you've been around me long enough to know that we would do ourselves well not to lie to ourselves and claim that we're going to get through that because we're not. I'd be happy if we got the first eight verses and then, Lord willing, in a few weeks we'll pick up verses 9 through 20, but the whole context, the whole account, if you want to call it that, the storyline goes Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And depending on how you would define that or how it may be headed up in your Bible, this may be just the casting out of the devils or demons and the Gadarenes. You might see this, and I have it titled in some places. I've kind of jotted some of my copies of Scripture there. The case of a man named Legion. Because according to what this man says his name is, and this was speaking from the mouth of the demons, the devils, the unclean spirits is another phrase to use for that. His name was Legion. And that's what we have here in the context. Now we're going to look at that from several different perspectives when we do get into the text. But before we get to the text, as we're approaching the text, 
I want to share with you something that I guess I stumbled over maybe last night late. I had a lot of things going on, so it was even later last night. I was revisiting a text one last time before we uh, talked about it today. And that is, what is the main purpose of such a text as this? I've told you hundreds of times, perhaps most recently, even in invitation, that when I view, this is just my personal perspective, but when I view Scripture, I look at it from two sides of the same coin. For one, you'll, understand, you'll recognize these words, I always look first to the passage. I look at the passage, I ask myself, what does the passage say? What is God teaching specifically? What's He being very clear on? Or what's He wanting to communicate to us? And you have to do that. That's the first and primary thing you always do with Scripture. Obviously, you look at the passage and see what the passage has to say. Now, once that is accomplished... If you'll go with caution, proceed with caution, you can move from passages to principles. And of course, that's what I refer to it as, basically application. So revelation to application. And what that means is, instead of just taking just the literal thou shalts and thou shalt not, or the commands of the text, which we must do first, and that must be the foundation of everything, then we may step back and use a text like these that are 2,000 plus years old, and we may make an application or a principle applied to ourselves and say, okay, well, in general, we can learn blank. And you can lay that out in many ways. And I think that when you approach, or at least when I've approached, and I've heard many do the same, when you approach Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, some of the applications or the principles that come out boil itself down to one thing, and that is the idea or the principle that if... Jesus can, act, can cast out the unclean spirits, the demons, from this man. Then in turn, he can cast out our sins. If Jesus can take away this man's pain and this man's difficulties and his disability in some sense, then he can take away ours. And of course, the application there could be very physical as you see this man dealing with physical situations as a result of his spiritual problem. In the same case, it could be for us, but we know ultimately, is God more um, interested in our physical needs or our spiritual? Spiritual needs. So I didn't make a true or false like Cliff that's always true. I couldn't form it quick enough. But he's, he's more interested and always more interested in our spiritual needs than the physical. So I say that because when we do look at a text like this, yes, we sometimes do find the passage itself, the truths that are written in. We do sometimes find principles themselves, applications, and those can be applied sometimes to the physical just for our comfort and for uh, the fulfilling of our present needs. But the spiritual application, if there are some, and there always are, those have to be applied as well. And I think as we've gone through the gospel according to Mark, we've seen that hopefully in every account or every section, paragraph of what we've seen all the way up through to this point. But I want to notice with you this morning, or even before we even really get in the text, that this account, in some senses, to look at it more from passage than principle, this account has something huge in our lives that we have to understand before we can apply anything else, okay? If the general application might be that someone says, okay, if he throws out the unclean spirits of this man, he can cast away our sins, that, that may very well be true and may very well measure up. But that is not the primary purpose of any of these gospel account writers. What are the gospel accounts? Name them out. Matthew, Mark, 
John, we know that. Our children hopefully know that downstairs and in the back, or at least they're learning that. Those four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you look at those gospel accounts and you put them uh, together as a unit, which they should be studied in that way, by the way, you get a lot of information that you might not get if you just tried to call on one and just allowed it to just stand alone and be by itself. For example, I try to always, when we uh, begin a new context, I try to always point out if there are available parallel accounts, we want to be able to at least be aware that they're there, and sometimes we'll read all three of them together. So in this case, looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, you have a parallel account also to this in Matthew's account. And his will be Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. So in the case of Matthew, this is one of the shorter versions of this that you'd see. Matthew 8, verses 28 to 34. You also see Luke bringing uh, this same account in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. So this is a rarity for Mark in that if you look at those parallels, John doesn't have anything specific about this event, but if you look at those parallels, something that's rare here in, in this occasion is that Mark actually gives us a longer, a more informative account of what happens here than the others. And that's not the general case. Because what has Mark continued to do Throughout this book, there's been one word that's been drawn out time and time again. It's right here in this context again as well. What has Mark continued to do as we've gone through the gospel so far, the first four chapters? He moves quickly. And the word immediately is that word used 42 times throughout just Mark's gospel account to show that he's going from, per, uh, I'm sorry, from situation to situation to situation to situation. And he's kind of keeping a pretty good clip. And in most cases, we certainly get plenty of information from reading what Mark has, but we're also benefited if we go over and read Matthew or Luke, and in some rare occasions, Matthew, Luke, and John. Sometimes John does have an account, he just doesn't hear. But if you read all those counts together, we learn something more about this. And there'll be plenty of times as we look at these first 20 verses of this chapter where we'll do that, it'll be beneficial. But in most cases today, it'll be just snippets. It'll be little phrases or a turning of a phrase that makes things uh, come to light a little bit more. It won't be anything major added to the text as there sometimes is. All that to say this. The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to be studied as a unit, but at the same time keep in mind that as they were penned, written down. Now they all revolve around the same accounts, and they all revolve around the same time frame. Why? Because they record primarily about the same character, that's Jesus. But as far as time of writing, meaning men being inspired, sitting down, writing out these words, and then later having them transcribed by scribes and passed around, circulated, even though up into us today having access to copies of the text translated into our own language in English in this case, the time of writing is slightly different between these gospel accounts. If you look at when Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, they were all written within a year or two of each other, very closely together, very tightly. 
And you might notice in that that many of the same things, and that's what we have noticed in these parallels, many of the same things, maybe just because of time, if for no other reason other than inspiration being made, but many of those things are, are very close. The way that they're written, the style of writing, the people that are addressed in some cases are similar. Now, each of the Gospels have a little bit different twist to them, but they're all similar. But then when you get to John, and I mentioned we don't often find exactly the same parallels, John is writing at a whole different time. John is writing decades after the other three writers have been inspired to pen their words. Does that matter? Well, I don't think it mounts to a hill of beans as long as we keep in mind that all three of these penmen are being inspired to write their material. And then it's in turn being circulated and translated for us. It doesn't mount to a hill of beans for one stand, but for another. John may have had, well, I know that he did, how much it was used or accessed. John would have had access to the other three gospel accounts, perhaps, copies of them, by the time he writes. Now, please don't misunderstand me. As I say sometimes, don't quote me from your notes. I'm not saying that John was any more or less inspired. They were all inspired uh, fully, uh, completely by God. But sometimes when you look at the Bible chronologically and you put the books in order of time of writing, you'll see certain veins or certain threads of things developing over time as you go through. There are things that one of the first recorded epistles to be written or recorded in the New Testament, James talks about, that don't come to fruition until you get way over until you start seeing letters to the Galatians or letters to the, to the church at Corinth and all the way up until we might see the Revelation. Things develop. That was a whole lot to say this. Turn your Bibles with me for just a minute over to the book of John. Taking into account all inspired but at the same time taking into account John being the last writer, penman, I should say, of the gospel accounts, he has something to say that we always quote, we always look at, that's very familiar to us, but he has something to say that I think can add to us understanding the purpose. You might call it the why of writing. There's passage, there's principle, there's revelation, there's application. How do we understand this? Look with me, if you would, to John chapter 20. Very familiar, quoted for many different reasons, but mainly this one. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Look at what John has to say. John 20, 30 and 31. Now he's making reference to signs, King James speak, John's account, but to miracles, to wonders, to mighty deeds. Those all being the same thing, just different perspective and reference. Verse 30, John chapter 20. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. What book? Trick question, but the book of John is primary. But these are written, verse 31, he says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. Now, one of the things that's very different about John's gospel, when you put it up against Matthew, Mark, or Luke's gospel, John records far less signs or miracles than they do. Count-wise, it depends on how you argue this out, count-wise, number-wise, there are approximately six 
to seven-ish miracles that are recorded in John's account. Starting with the water changing wine in Cana of Galilee, going forth and so forth, up until, if you count the miracle of Jesus being resurrected, which obviously was one, supernatural event at least, you may have six, seven of those, depending on how you count it out. The other gospel accounts record so many more. Out of the somewhere in the neighborhood between 32 to 36 distinctive miracles recorded, and I, when I say that, I mean miracles that listed at least a person involved. You know, not just a generalization, but a person involved. Uh, there were many more that were done and were covered throughout Mark's gospel when he just talked about him healing everyone who came out, which could have been hundreds of thousands of people. But when you get down to individual accounts, you, you get somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 to 36. The counting of that is difficult because they do record parallel accounts. And sometimes the question is brought up, for example, is this blind man the same thing as that blind man? Is the blind man that Matthew talks about is the same guy that Mark talks about? It's sometimes hard to tell. So there's a little variant in that. But out of that number of recorded individual miracles, John only records approximately... Seven-ish. So John made the statement, he was inspired to do so. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Now, if you leave your finger there on chapter, five, chapter 20, verse 30, you can tie that very closely, um, if you will, over to chapter 21 and verse 25. What does it say? Chapter 21, 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should have been written, every one of them, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So what do we know? We know for a fact John knows, he knows he didn't record them all. He basically in general says in verse 25, no one could have recorded them all. We have no way to even record the many things that he did because they're so innumerable that the world itself wouldn't contain them. If you, I guess if you just took a, a ballpoint pen and wrote as small as you could and wrote all around the world, all around the mountains, across the seas, and, or at least paper and just strode it all, you couldn't get to it. All that said generally to say this. When you go back to chapter 20, that we were just looking at verse 30 and then 31, John tells us that the miracles he recorded were written, verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John, why do you write these, why do you record these signs, these miracles? Why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. That's why John writes. Now here's my question. Is John the only one that wrote for that purpose? I'd shake my head off on that one. No, no. And so although we might find application or, if you will, principle in all of these that apply to us, at the end of the day, the purpose for all of the gospel accounts was to prove the deity and the power of Christ. Now, certainly John was specific through his book to do that. Certainly John had a, a, a creative way of writing that God gave him so that he might successfully record these things. But my argument would be then that Mark is no far away from that. He's not very far from it. And so when you go back finally 
to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Regardless or is it regardless or irregardless? I always I put the ear in there for no reason sometimes. Regardless of what else we see, the main purpose is he's going to prove the authority, the deity, the validity of Christ. That's what he proves. We know that's true also because even in the most immediate context, if you look back into chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, that was the record of those disciples we referenced that were making their way across the sea. Jesus said, peace be still. He proved to be the final authority when it came to controlling the dangers of life. He took them out of that place. He calmed those seas. He took away the dangers. You look down in the chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, where we are, he's going to prove again in Mark's account to be the final authority and deity, the Son of God, in that he handles the devils or the demons in this case. Unclean spirits, they're called the first verse. You look on a little bit farther into chapter 5, verses 24 to 34, which is almost an interruption to some other things that are going on. He deals with a lady who'd had a disease, an infirmity. Her entire, I guess for her entire life, for the majority of her life. And that showing that he had the power over disease. You look into chapter 5, this is broken half by the context. Chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. And then chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. He takes care of death. He handles the death of a young Jairus' daughter. And then we learn here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, which we're nowhere near, but he kicks back into showing his final authority as far as doctrine. So whether it's dangers, whether it's devils, whether it's disease, whether it's death, whether it's doctrine that matters none at all, he himself, Jesus, God in the body, he is God. And he proves that just as much. So John does that, obviously, the way he even begins and ends his gospel account. But don't believe for a moment that Mark has been void in doing that. And so the main purpose, the why of these 20 verses will be to prove the deity of Christ. So let's read some of those. Beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 5, we're there. And they came over to the other side and the sea... and. And they came on the other side of the sea in the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come in the ship, immediately, there's our word already, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs in verse 3. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him. And the fetters had been broken into pieces. Neither could any man tame him. Verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountain and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee, or ask of thee, by God, that thou torment me not. For he said this, for he said unto him, Come out of this man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. In verse 10, and he besought him much that much, besought him much that he would not send them away into the country. 
And there was with them, nine of them, in the mountain a great herd of swine feeding. And the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may, not, that we may enter into them. And forthwith, same thing as immediately there, Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea, and they were about 2,000, and they were choked in the sea. Verse 14, And they that fed the swine fled, and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out, into the, and went out to see what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus to see him that was possessed of devil, and, and they, I'm sorry, and they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with devil, and he had a legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they saw it and told them how it befell him and was possessed with the devil, and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him or beg of him that, they de that he depart from the coast, from their coast. And who was coming to the ship, he had been possessed of the devil, prayed him that he might be with him. Albeit, Jesus suffered him not. But he saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and, and hath compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish it in Decapolis, how great the things that Jesus had done for him, and they all, all did marvel. So that's verses 1 through 20 right there in the context. There's several things to bring out. First of all, I kind of divided this up in my mind for understanding. But the first thing I come across here in the context is the conversation that we need to have about the savage man. The savage man. Verses 1 to 5 describe this man to us, tell us quite a bit about him as a matter of fact. For one thing, it tells us that he was over here near into the country of the Gadarenes. Now, if you look at the other parallels to this, for example, Luke chapter 8 and verse 26, as well as Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28, you see a little bit of different terminology to describe where this man was. Matter of fact, Matthew tells us he was in a little bit different place. Now, the question might be, was there a contradiction? If he tells us he was in the land of the Gadarenes or he tells us that he was in the, the Gergesenes, is there any difference there? No, because he's talking about a general area. If you were to go and try to locate today, modern day, and a lot of these quote-unquote biblical holy land places can be located, can be found and can be pointed out. Their names may have changed over time or the topography may have changed a bit, but many of these can be located. But we know this one, whatever's being spoken of, is something that happened right by the seaside. Preceding context, what had happened. Jesus and his disciples going across the sea. There was a great storm. Uh, they believed they would die. They asked Jesus if he even cared. Jesus calms the storm, and then they go on across there to the other side. As soon as Jesus steps forth from the boat, the idea of this happening immediately, verse 2, as soon as they came over the other side, Jesus and the disciples encounter this man that comes out possessed of all these devils, all these, quote, unclean spirits. He comes into a general area. We know exactly where he was, however, according to that, because it tells us down the page a little bit that he was one who dwelled among the tombs. This man with the unclean spirit dwelt among the tombs. And so we learned a little bit about the place where he was, not very specific, but we do have some information at least on that. 
But look at what the character of this man was. Number one, notice the specific problem. It's in verse 2. And when he came out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with a, quote, unclean spirit. I didn't check some of the other translations. Anything that lists that any differently that you have in front of you. Verse 2, the last two words, an unclean spirit. I don't think there would be much different if at all. I just didn't check that. This is a reference, again, to some form of demon possession. As a matter of fact, it talks about how he had the devil, is the way they refer to it a little bit later in the context, so they're all somewhat associated there. This man has an unclean spirit. Now, how bad would that be? We read about what happens with a man. We're about to get to that. We read about all that he's dealing with, how he's being tortured by these demons. He's being uh, carried away. He's, he cannot be tamed in verse 4. We'll mention that a little bit later. He cannot be bound with chains. He cannot be bound with fetters or that which will be around his feet. Uh, he's completely out of control. And he's dwelling among the tombs, we'll mention in a moment. But how bad would that really be? Jesus and his disciples, time of writing, if they were to trace their lineage back, what lineage do they follow after, Jew or Gentile? They're on the Jewish side. They're coming into the country of the Gadarenes, which have been primarily Gentile, if you will, filtrated places, primarily would have consisted of Gentiles. So Jesus has come across with his disciples toward Gentile lands, and they meet with a man with an unclean spirit with a Jewish mindset. How bad was it? I don't know another word. How severe was it? How bad was it for a Jew to be or become unclean? How did that matter? It's a long rigmarole. You can go back to Exodus. I'm sorry, you were still talking? I was just going to say the process. Yeah, a, a long process. You can go back to Exodus and Leviticus and see the reading of the long. You see tons of details there added of what involved someone being clean or unclean. Now, among the things that were involved in this man being unclean, the main one we see is the fact that the spirit that's in him is said of God to be unclean. So if he wasn't dealing with anything else, if he had no other issue, in this case I'm calling that no other problem at all, he's already being possessed by at least one, we'll see there are plenty more, we know, unclean spirits. So he's unclean in the spirit that dwells in him. That's one thing. Number next, they encountered him where? Where was he? In the tombs. Guess what? If a Jew had touched a body, a dead body, even if it be their, their late great-grandmother, whoever it was, they themselves would have been considered to be unclean, for Rick mentioned it, for at least that first seven days. That would have caused them to be unclean. You say, wait a minute, we have no proof that this man had touched a dead body. They had added, and I'm not talking about God here, the rabbis by this time had taken God's word, in some senses abused it. Some senses I think there were probably some good intentions in it. They were just trying to apply it and make sure that they were uh, sure that they were sure that they weren't committing anything that was wrong. 
But the rabbis had taken that to say not only would it prevent you from being clean if you touched a dead body, but if you touched in the bodily fluids of that body, but also they said if you touched the grave of that dead body. Or they would call it the bear. I don't know how you say that. I made that up. It sounded weird when I said it. But the, t- the uh, casket. For them, that was unclean. And you could see why. Because if the, you know, the body's there, the body touched the caskets, you touch, and so on, they only go, they go. So we got a man who his problem is, number one, he's unclean because of the spirit within him. Number two, he would be considered unclean even by uh, Jewish law. If he had been underneath that, he would be unclean because he had been in amongst the tombs. He'd been living there. In the next place, this man likewise would have been considered unclean just because he's in Gentile land. The Jews in the most extreme cases, they didn't want to have anything to do with the Gentiles. And so they would assume if they found someone dwelling among the Gentiles, then he must not be living according to the Jewish law. Therefore, he must be and likely would be participating in things that would have made them unclean, and they would have cast him out as well, potentially. And then we have this man here that's also, we know later down the page, he's dwelling among the tombs, and he's also in very close proximity to some kind of animal. What is that? The pigs or the swine. Unclean to the Jew. So whether or not he was sitting there eating uh, pork and beans at night, I, I don't know any of that, but I know that he was there among those swine. They were at least close enough that that's where those demons were sent out. So if those all four are true or one or two are true, we know several would be. Obviously, it's an unclean spirit, so that one's true. We know that he would have been among the tombs, so that one would likely have been true. But possibly four different ways this man was unclean. Now, why do I even mention that? Because we've got Jesus and his disciples pulling up to the side of the sea right there, stepping out on the land, and what are they encountering? An extremely, in their mind perhaps, unclean man. He was naked also. That, that, just, that just, I should have wrote that one down too. Just added to it. What would the comfort level be? We're making supposition here. What would the comfort level be of those disciples given any or all of those? Nakedness would ramp it up for me. There wouldn't be any. So I don't know how this really worked out, but I can just imagine total supposition. I can imagine those disciples saying, Jesus, (laughs) you got something to deal with. Or stay away from him. Yeah, that's true. Yes, sir. That's true. If you couldn't hear Brad, they purposely went to that area. Jesus was the guide in this. And by the way, all the accounts that we find where Jesus sends even the disciples, the thing we know at the end of the day is, it was in his will to do so. So yes, they go into this area knowingly. And then Jesus is approached by this man. So he's got a terrible problem. He's an un- he has an unclean spirit. Probably some of these other things are, are in play as well. In verse 3 and 4, you see this man's pain. We're talking about the savage man. You see his pain. What was he dealing with specifically? Verse 4, he had his dwelling among the tombs. 
No man could bind him. What does that imply? In man's eyes, he needed to be bound. This man is in such a position, such a terrible position with his actions that they at least believe that he need be bound. You know, we've, we've gotten a little few different methods that are available to us, but it wasn't too many years ago. I'm not saying it doesn't happen now. But where people, where they, they have fits or they, or they have sessions of madness or whatever, um, they're bound in what sometimes? Straitjackets. I mean, you may even have a loved one that there's nothing wrong with them emotionally at the time, but they may go through a surgery where they may at the end of, the, at the end of that surgery bring them out and do what? They may have to tie their hands to the bed or something because they need to control their actions so they won't hurt themselves or someone else. This man was in a position where there had been attempts, seemingly multiple attempts, to bind him. To what extent? says he was dwelling among the tombs. This man, they had tried to bind him with chains and had been often bound with chains and fetters, so hands and feet, and he had plucked them asunder by the fetters, and they had been broken to pieces. Now we still understand this and know this sometimes. Someone who's having a, a, a battle with mental illness, or in, in our case we see too much, uh, some types of drugs sometimes can influence them. And you can see humans almost take on humans, superhuman strength. Pete, y'all, either one of y'all ever encountered anybody? For sure, yeah. This man, I guess, is beyond that. Chains, fetters, the people have come out. They've tried to, to tie him up to, for their own or his own protection, and he's just completely mad. He's plucking chains like they're nothing. He's shredding the fetters. What does Jesus and his disciples do? Assuming and knowing he's the leader of that, Jesus approaches and goes toward him. This man runs toward him. Now, put this in Jim Merle perspective. I'm not Jesus for sure. I'm not even a good disciple, I, I suppose, because you put this in Jim Merle perspective, he's running down the hill toward me. I've got a boat right behind me. I just might do what? I might hop the ship and head back. Jesus faces him. Jesus comes up to him in spite of his problems and in spite of his pain. But look at, look at how powerless this man was. I would have supposed Jesus' motor didn't crank very quick, but you're right. It would be handy. Um, the last word there, or last two words in verse 4, are, are fairly special to the, uh, to the translation of it. It adds to that that no man could tame him. Tame him. This word is generally used, the original Greek word is generally used to imply the taming if you will, or the subduing of an animal. Now that may describe again something about the way this man is acting as a result of the unclean spirits that are in him. And then you see right here what was happening with him. He was completely powerless. It says that he cried out, verse 5, both night and day in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. So when you think about the savage man, there are at least those things. There's the problem that he has, there's the pain that he experiences, and then there's the powerlessness that he also is dealing with. Now what happens on the end of this? We'll do a Paul Harvey rest of the story. What happens, and we haven't read it 
uh, thoroughly yet. All that's taken away. Jesus takes care of all of that. Why? Because he's God. Thank you for your time. Yes.